God. A woman. <laughs> Not just a woman, the most beautiful and succulent woman in the history of mankind. <laughs> Dave, this is Marianne. Dave, hello, I'm I'm a real fan. Uh, <laughs> who isn't? <laughs> well, it's uh, lovely to meet you, uh, miraculous Marianne. Mm. 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 Parlez-vous français? No. No, no, me neither. I can see why you wanted that condom. What? It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time disc jockey. That's right, it's Andy in the morning, Raphael. <sighs> I'll soon be on a sex offender's register near you. <laughs> You've kind of preempted my whole spiel about what this intro is going to be with that. <laughs> and for our latest episode, we're taken to the high seas to hang out with the least problematic collection of people of all. That's right, we're hanging out with the British radio DJs from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> but does this boat rock or sink like a stone? Find out after the trailer. In 1966, Britain was terrorised by a boat that rocked. Radio Rock, the greatest station in the world. Pirate Radio. They are the sewer of low morals. Welcome to the boat of love. <laughs> From Richard Curtis, creator of Notting Hill, four weddings and a funeral, I'm getting married! and love actually. Welcome to our world. We're going to shut them down. Philip Seymour Hoffman. They can't close us down. We're pirates. Yeah! Bill Nye. Spectacular mistake. Reese fans. Are you breaking the rules? Nick Frost. Big. You're very beautiful. And Kenneth Branagh. Oh, that's a pity. <laughs> sure, throwing him in is the best way of getting to learn how to swim. Absolutely. Welcome aboard. The boat that rocked. You know, although on second thoughts, it might just be for kids. I think you throw in an adult. It doesn't work that way. Oh dear God, what is that on the horizon? Is that? Oh, it is. It's conflict. Quick, hard to starboard. Phew, we nearly found ourselves in the sea of drama there, folks. <laughs> well... If this boat's rocking, it's probably best to call Operation U-Tree because this movie boasts the sketchiest collection of disc jockeys since BBC Radio began broadcasting. <laughs> Featuring a who's who of talent, Richard Curtis's The Boat That Rocks aims to channel the swinging 60s comedy of a hard day's night, but does it end up feeling more a hard day's shite? <laughs> so, Andy, you nominated The Boat That Rocked for discussion on the episode today yeah yeah so um what's your experience with this film my experience is that i didn't go and see the film at the cinema i think this is a running theme with most of the shows that we've done this season yeah i've seen them at the cinema 
and you didn't. <laughs> I think bar one film, this series, <laughs> I haven't actually watched any of these films in the cinema. Yeah. But this came out at a time when I was studying audio engineering. The male form. An <laughs> <laughs> essay in London. And I had a lot of friends in my class who actually did go and see it. They raved about it at the time. I just never got around to going and seeing it. But not long after, when the film was released on Blu-ray, I did pick up the Blu-ray and watch it then. And um, I watched this film on a fairly regular basis. I probably watched this film maybe twice a year Yeah, from then on till now. So it is a film that I have a long-standing relationship with. It'll be interesting to hear your opinion of the film because I do know... It's one of those films where I do know what the problems are, but I love it anyway. Yes, yeah. It resonates with me in such a way that I am willing to overlook maybe some deficiencies in the film. Yeah, kind of like the way that I am with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this was a film that I did go to the cinema to watch, and I was actually really looking forward to it because, man, what a cast. Yeah. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment. But my first impression of the film was very largely negative. Mm -hmm. But I would say that it wasn't a film that was offensively bad. What really got to me about it was that it's one of those almost films for me. Yeah. Yeah. Where I was like, wow, this collection of people and they're firing on all cylinders. And yet there's really nothing for me to hang on to with the film in terms of story or conflicts and that was always like an issue with me is it just felt like a series of vignettes yeah yeah with no real direction and yeah so i came away from the film thinking wow that didn't quite do it for me and because of the what i perceived as being the waste of talent it kind of irked me somewhat and i've not seen it again since i knew about the um the whole situation with the american release because we spoke about it around that time yeah so yeah i'm really approaching this film what like nearly 15 years later 14 15 years later and this is essentially my second watch so i was actually looking forward to seeing if my opinion had changed so it's going to be a interesting to really get into into whether it has or not over the years yeah it it is a series of vignettes tied together by a very loose plot and rather interestingly for me i feel like the plot is the thing that works about it the least yeah which I think is part of the issue. I reckon if this film was made nowadays, it would probably be maybe a six-part miniseries. Yes. Like half an hour. Because I think the original cut of the film ran to about three hours anyway. So if you split those up into half-hour sections, I reckon it would be a nice little miniseries <laughs> rather than a yeah. film. I've actually written in my notes that, if anything, it feels like uh, Richard Curtis has written a tv series like black adder or something like that you know things that he was involved in and it's been just kind of stitched together very haphazardly into a film format yeah i think this is a project that he was very passionate about i think this is a passion project i think this is the film that he wanted to make after doing something like love actually which i feel like was more him getting that out of the way because that's what people expect from him when he makes a a motion picture. Yeah, it's like I've done it now and there's nowhere to go with that format now, with that genre, so it's time for me to move on. And this is his second film as a director. I think this is what he really wanted to do because he did say on one of the featurettes that this film had been 10 years in the gestation. Yeah. So 
maybe Four Weddings was a rather earnest, but because of the success of that film, he kind of got typecast into writing yeah. films with a obvious romantic element that would sell in the US. Although I like Notting Hill, it's definitely written with that in mind. It's written with a, a clear agenda in mind. And the same goes for About Time, which I feel like is his apology tour. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I remember at the time that he stated that About Time was his last film as a director. And I think the experience, not the experience of making this film, but the aftermath of this film, I think hurt him on a personal level to the point where he didn't yeah. want to make films anymore. And I feel like About Time was just a way of writing the ship somewhat before he stepped off that particular mm. period of his life and he's kind of just gone back into writing films again now again with a more sort of romantic angle yeah which for me is a shame because when he started and when you look at his television work it's so far removed from that of course it is yeah it's a lot more varied than people give him credit for and i feel this was a way of trying to get out of that and unfortunately that did not come to pass and even when you watch the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, he does an intro to every deleted scene and you can see the disappointment on his face that this film wasn't embraced by audiences. Obviously, we'll go into that much later when we talk about the stats and fact, but this is a film that was, it was a complete non-starter, which is a bizarre yeah. thing considering, one, the subject matter, because it deals with music and popular music and just, yeah, the cast. Yeah. I don't know how people weren't even enticed by the cast. Yeah, that's incredibly odd. And um, I guess we'll get into that with the stats and facts, but I certainly have opinions or questions as to how this film didn't land with anyone, really. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's weird when you look at Richard Curtis's filmography because it seems like it wasn't just a genre of film that he got typecast in, but it was almost like a format, a template of film as well, where it's like yeah. a romantic comedy with an American co-lead. Yeah. seemed to be the thing moving forward for him and, and what he was kind of, I guess, in some way pressurized into. Because you have that with, obviously, the one that is completely free of any cynicism with regard to that, which is Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah. There was no expectation with that film. But then you have it with Notting Hill. Love Actually is kind of the exception to the rule because that is an ensemble anyway. You yeah. kind of get away with it. About Time even has that. When you look at his filmography around this period, the Boat That Rocked, yeah, sure, it has Philip Seymour Hoffman in the lead, but it almost feels like it's a, um, it stands apart from those films yeah. completely and stylistically, absolutely. So I have to give him credit for, like, in that period of time where something is expected of him for doing something completely different for Richard Curtis, essentially. Yeah. Something yeah. which, as I say, we as, like, Blackadder fans who know his TV work and that kind of thing, and even I would say Four Weddings of a Funeral is... I think it's different than people remember it to be. Yeah. It's not as like Love Actually as people remember it. No, it's much more grounded than his other films. Because it was made as a small film, there was no expectation or intention for him to be a big hit. It was just a yeah. small British film, which just grew way beyond anyone's expectations. Yeah. So it has a completely different tone to it. Yeah. I know that this is a common reference for Richard Curtis, but he kind of reminds me of like a contemporary British John Hughes, but also in the yeah. way that the industry has approached him over the years and the type of films that it kind of wants him to do. Yeah. And it's not always the type of film that he wants to do. 
Yeah, which is I find is it's a weird thing because he's got a lot more range as a writer than John Hughes. I think so. John Hughes made John Hughes films all the time. He didn't attempt to do anything that yeah. stepped outside of that formula, whereas Richard Curtis accidentally fell into that formula. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, But his body of work, especially beforehand, speaks volumes to his skills and also his skills as a collaborator as well. The fact that he's writing dialogue-based humour and physical-based humour. And also, if you take into account his work with uh, Spitting Image, topical-based humour as well, because he used to yes, write yeah. for Not the Nine O'Clock <laughs> News and Spitting Image. So he has a wide range of skill sets when it comes to writing comedy. Yeah, he does, yeah. I mean, he's very much from the same background as the likes of Rowan Atkinson and Fry and Laurie and that background of comedy actor and performer. So they're all people that are known like for being quite posh dudes the oxbridge set <laughs> the oxbridge yeah. yeah but also value the power of vaudeville of slapstick of slapping somebody in the face for a funny joke you know that type of thing yeah i think that kind of scene is monty python the next generation because they yes, come from yeah. very similar backgrounds you even have rowan atkinson falling into the john cleese role of going very very ever so slightly right wing yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> But um, it does give his films especially a certain slight warpedness about them. And I think this is what American audiences love about his films. It doesn't really portray Britain in a very realistic light. It's through a very, I'd say, quite naive lens. Yes, yeah, it is. He's not one of these people that's on the ground, if you know what I mean. No. He's, uh, I imagine, had a very sheltered life. Yes, and that shows because one of the things that this film falls into that is like common throughout Richard Curtis's career is the Richard Curtis leading man, the foppish, very sheltered of a specific class of lead character. I mean, you say write what you know, but he very rarely writes it from the perspective of a working class individual, which I think he shares that with John Hughes as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. His films certainly have working-class characters, but they're never, like... They're a lot broader in terms of the comedy that he goes for with those characters kind of thing. And he clearly has a lot of affection for people on the ground, but he doesn't really know how they how they live. <laughs> yeah, there's always a positive stance on everything, which yes. I think is yeah. part of the appeal, because I think people go to these films to escape from their problems it's very mm-hmm. much like an escapist world that he's created he does create films which are for many people a comfort blanket which i think is why his films are probably more embraced in the states than they are in the uk because in the uk we do have a rather profound sense of cynicism yeah we have a cynical streak through us really i think these films rub people up the wrong way sometimes i think they do especially like if you're like, the perspective of Britain is always, like you say, it's a naive one. It's always a, a positive spin of, I'd say the government's normally shown in a pretty terrible light. Yeah, but it's always yeah. like a jovial, terrible light kind of thing. It's like, look at these backwards, stuffy, old white guys. Yo, those guys are at it again. Yeah, no one's ever really struggling yes, in yeah. a financial sense in these films. Even something like About Time where... You do have certain characters who struggle with their mental health and stuff like that, but there's still not an element of financial struggle. Oh, what's the character that Charlotte Carman plays in Four Weddings? His uh, flatmate. You've got characters like her, you've got Spike in Notting Hill, and then you've got the sister in About Time. 
they're all odd ones out, but there's never... Like, what's the situation with William Thacker and Spike living in that rather massive house in the middle of Notting Hill? Yeah, exactly. It's very much like Friends in that regard, where they have this huge apartment in New York City. That's exactly what it's like, yeah. I think there's an escapist, yeah. like a real escapist element to that. I'm, I think as people from the UK, we know that that's not how it works. So yeah. it, it kind of gets some criticism on that. I know that there is a um, like a, quite an audible minority of people that are very much against Richard Curtis films. They always perceive it as being schmaltz and the type of character that he portrays. But I think there is a place for it. And I, I think that's why people often over here call it cheesy. But You need a bit of smelts. Yeah, I've always said you need, as individuals, we need escapism. And it's good that not everything over here is so oh, turgid in colour and outlook. Because we need that. <laughs> yeah. There's a weird tradition in British film that British films need to be either hard-hitting or out-and-out broad cockneys versus zombies that kind of yes shit. yeah sex lives of the potato man yeah or like just the most <laughs> depressing film you've ever seen kind of thing yeah but then in the middle of that you've got working title and working yes, title is the only film company that doesn't make films like that yeah i mean that's what i love about like the edgar wright films yeah. as well yeah. like it kind of puts britain on a map for doing something else and i would say that that even goes back to the way in which we teach film literacy over here one of the very first film courses i did while i was at college was a comparison of films from the swinging 60s in terms of what films were being made in the north and what films were being made in the south yeah. and in the south you had films like a hard day's night and up north you had films like kez it felt almost like in that course they were pitting one film against the other and expecting us to say oh well this film shows up the inherent flaws in the other film my opinion of that was always isn't there space for both type of films to exist isn't there a need for us as individuals to have more than one type of film now every film has to be this informative hard-hitting kitchen sink drama equally not every film needs to be a very flippant kind of cheesy and irreverent comedy yeah we kind of need both in order to survive really british film is quite varied but there's just a weird perception of how things should be. And working title films especially break that mould, which is probably why they're the most successful British film company. Yeah, yeah. And I think working title are very unapologetically commercial. They make commercial films. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. But I think as, as a nation, as a culture, we just sneer at things like that. Yes. Yeah. Earnestness seems to be a quality that we do sneer at quite often. Yeah. There's a certain bitterness about yeah. the UK. Definitely <laughs> historical. <laughs> I will say, every now and again from work and time, you do get a film that skews both, like, your Attack the Block kind of film. Mm. You know, it's like, it's a high-concept comedy action film that also has a social edge to it in terms of its message. And so, I think it's a a type of film and a type of outlook that we need <laughs> as a British film industry. Yeah, definitely. So I guess this is a great point, really, to start moving on to... I mean, we've been talking, really, about like what Richard Curtis was making around the time that The Boat That Rocked came out. But really, what is the background behind this film? And um, how did it come to be, essentially? I mean, it has basis in historical facts as well. Pirate radio... <laughs> it's, it's a genuine thing. This is where things like the pirate ship actually come from and where the term comes from because I'm sure 
there are many other examples, but this one, I think, from my research, seems to be based on Radio Caroline a little bit more significantly. Yeah, there were many pirate radio stations, Radio Caroline, Radio Luxembourg. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and they were on either boats or some of them were on, like, former oil rigs, all sorts of different things. Can you sum up what pirate radio is? Just yeah. Because that's a context that, that really needs to be <laughs> explained. Yeah, so... Pirate radio is, it's not just exclusive to the UK, but it's basically, it's a station broadcasting to a certain country that does not have a license to broadcast within that certain country. And they're usually stationed not on land, but they're usually stationed out in the sea. The film doesn't really go into that. I think it kind of wants to paint a slightly rosier picture of the stations. The reason they were labelled as pirate was that they did not have a license. Now, I'm not sure whether that's because they weren't allowed a license because of yeah. you know the various institutions, whether they actually wanted to have a license, because they certainly generated plenty of capital with their advertising. So there must have been a more political angle to it. Yeah. There wasn't the kind of wiggle room or diversity that you would have now, because obviously nowadays you have well over like 200 radio stations operating in the UK. But because of the BBC's institutional place within the UK and the fact that they would only broadcast certain kind of music for a very short period of time in the day, there was a real gap in the market which these people exploited to the hilt. Yes. And you're talking numbers which far outweigh any kind of broadcast numbers that you would get now. These stations would pull in around 20 million people a day. So this is a a big deal which is why the um, Marine Offences Act, which is a real thing, was implemented in 1967. I think it was implemented in the August of 1967. So the whole film revolves around this basic premise, but it does it in an anachronistic way where it's technically set in 1966 and deals with this particular act, but the actual details... And the kind of music that it pulls in and the and the influences are very much just generalized to around that period. So there's all sorts of different things that come in from, say, 65, probably all the way up until about 1971. So yeah. all the influences and styles and music are all within that sort of five to six year period. So it plays it rather fast and loose with its references. And yeah, yeah, it was intended as such. It was designed to give you a feeling of that period rather than be historically accurate. Yes, especially like on a character level, when you look at the people that were involved and like some of the figureheads involved in pirate radio in the 60s. And then you look at the characters in The Boat That Rocks. I know that one of the things that Richard Curtis said is that there aren't any really one-to-one comparisons. This character isn't based on that character, and that character isn't based on whatever. But um, there are a few where you get a feeling of the type of radio DJ that might have flourished in this environment, and it certainly does feel that way. I've got a list here of like what they're kind of based on. So Gavin Kavanagh is based on Admiral Robbie Dale. He was a yes. prominent pirate radio DJ. Simple Simon is based on Tony Blackburn, who was also unlucky in love <laughs> at that time. <laughs> that simple Simon. I will say Tony Blackburn. One time I was listening to the radio and um, a couple of DJs had got their hands on a copy of his autobiography. And one of the DJs could do an excellent Alan Partridge impression. <laughs> and they started reading out excerpts of the 
they would just open and get to random yeah, pages and yeah. read and get out in Alan Partridge's voice, and it was just perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Angus the Nut, Nutsford, is based on Kenny Everett. Yes, yeah. Bob the Dawn Treader is based on Whispering Bob Harris uh, mm-hmm. of the Old Grey Whistle Test. I love that Old Grey Whistle Test. That's something I've only got into recently. Oh, Old Grey Whistle Test. Wonderful. I wish we had that back. Yeah. The Count is based on Emperor Roscoe. And uh, very obviously, <laughs> Dr. Dave is based on Dave Lee Travis. Yeah. And we mentioned Operation U-Tree at the start yeah. of the program. <laughs> so yeah. you can see where those comparisons come from. Yeah. I mean, one thing to say just while we're on that topic is there's a saying that people often like to use. Normally, the anti-woke brigade is, oh, well, you can't make that kind of film now. Like, The Boat the Rocks isn't a film that you could have made really, what, five years after it came out? Because the opinion, the general like public opinion on radio DJs from that era changed yeah. so dramatically, so yeah. quickly. It's almost like this film was like the last chopper out of Saigon when it comes to this yeah. type of film. Because there's no way, shape or form, that you could ever make a film about these people shown in this particular way with such a flippant and positive spin and such a kind of like free attitude towards things like sex, drugs, yeah. and alcohol. Well, I mean, there's not much drugs and alcohol in this film. It's mostly sex. Yeah, I think it was written with the perspective of the joy of being on that boat. And yeah. the people that were there and the antics that went on. There was definitely a dark side to that, but I don't think the film was ever going to touch that. No, no. It's crazy now, thinking about now, the, how much we didn't know back then, even though we were only talking like 14 years ago. It was a very different time. <laughs> you know, that's how quickly things move on. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't like to get into it, but the only one that people had an inkling about seemed to be like Jimmy Savile would be yeah. the one where the rumours would swirl around. Once the Jimmy Savile thing happened, it opened a floodgate of revelations, essentially. I think it went far deeper than anyone ever thought it would ever go. Yeah. So that was like a surprise. Yeah, I think this film probably would be written completely differently if it was made now. Like I said, it would probably be a miniseries for a start. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think the angle of that would be completely different, but I think that's not what he was intending. Absolutely not. It's probably the wrong choice of words, but it's probably unfair to judge it on that merit because I don't think that's what it was going for. I mean, I absolutely agree. But at the same time... (laughs) There's so many things in this film that are inappropriate. It's uh, yeah. when you're looking at it with today's <laughs> angle, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. There is a Revenge of the Nerds type nearly rape scene. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if you just pretend to be me and uh, we'll turn the lights <laughs> off. and <laughs> I think that's why, in a way, it's kind of appropriate that Dr. Dave is based on Dave Lee Travis because yeah. most of the dodgier parts of the film are, are revolve his character. Yeah. He's the most problematic character in the whole film. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what Richard Curtis thinks of this now, yeah. having the context of time and, and changing attitudes and things like that and things that have come to light. But yeah, we're going very deep down this rabbit hole because we can get stuck in here. <laughs> well, it was one of those things where we had to bring it up because it's, well, there's no way to get through this episode without... It's the elephant in the room. ...approaching it. Yeah, exactly. In fact, my whole like, script was kind of based around the idea <laughs> that, you know what, disc jockeys from the 60s and 70s are perhaps not the most trustworthy of individuals. Yeah. But, um... Do you have any background on like how Richard Curtis came to make this film? How, like, it's 
development, its gestation, any interest in production history notes? Yeah, so I think this maybe explains the huge ensemble nature of it and maybe the lack of plot in the film, but he's a a huge fan of Robert Altman. Ah, yes, yeah. And he's a huge fan of the Robert Altman film Nashville. And this was his attempt at trying to recreate the feeling and structure of a film like Nashville, which, again, is a film based around music and has a very large ensemble cast and has a very loose plot with lots of different threads going on in vignettes. Yeah. So I think this was his attempt at making a film like that. I'd never made that connection, but I actually, like, that seems rather apt. Yeah, it makes sense. You can also see the influence of Robert Altman and his ensemble films in Love Actually. Because that's course, another, yeah. another film like that. Because Robert Altman made quite a lot of films in that style. Yeah, Gosford Park was another Gosford one. Park, yeah. And also he used, um, even though it's not quite the same, M.A.S.H., as an influence on the boat that rocked as well. I can see that, yeah. There's a press-up scene that got deleted that was very similar to something that they would do on MASH. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say, like, there's a deleted scene of an impromptu surgery on a Vietnam soldier. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it was a rather strange direct reference to MASH, actually. <laughs> yeah. We talk so much about nostalgia now and how nostalgia for say something like the 80s or the 90s cuts out all the bad bits when in fact not that we're living in amazing times right now but they were kind of just as shit back then as they are now yeah of course they were yeah just in a slightly different way it's almost like a way back to the future approach the 1950s it's yeah. like yeah it's it's good for marty sure but you know we put eddie murphy in that role oh god yeah you've got a different film sir yeah <laughs> this film is dealing with the swinging 60s with that light and also it's interesting that it is doing so because this was at a time just prior to the whole nostalgia fest that we're uh, sort of into now but i think this is a different kind of nostalgia because it's the generation before where they're glorifying the 60s whereas now we're kind of glorifying the 80s and it's slowly creeping into the 90s now definitely going that way yeah so i think these things just come in cycles but um yeah so that was the intention to make this big ensemble piece and they shot for five weeks on a boat, which was the uh, the Timor Challenger, and it was actually anchored off Portland Harbour near Weymouth. So all the scenes oh. of the boat are actually quite close to land. They just it's what it's like a Jaws thing where they they're actually quite close to land, but they just film away. Yeah, it's film away, and then the rest of it was filmed in Shepparton with all the sets on gimbals, so they would actually yeah. rock in the same way because a lot of the cast members are saying i'm here in shepperton there's no difference <laughs> being yeah. on this on this set to when we're on the boat and also the attention to detail was uh, fantastic apparently there were things like airfix kits in cubby holes yeah the uh, production designer incidentally was mark tildesley who's worked on quite a few um danny boyle films and because of that was the production designer on no time to die oh wow i do actually love the production design i I really like the look of the film and you get a sense with this boat that it is a lived in lived on real breathing environment you know it doesn't feel like a set it feels like you know like when you see some really great miniature model work that someone's done you can just spend hours looking at it like that feels like a, a boat that i would I could spend hours looking through and admiring some of the production design. I think that's part of the intention as well. Like, he wants to put you on that boat. He wants you to enjoy the time on the boat. I think that's the ultimate goal of the film. And for me personally, it kind of works for that. 
because I do want to spend time on that boat with uh, some of those people. <laughs> Maybe not Dr. Dave. But um, yeah, I mean, it was very well researched because they did have a, a consultant on the film who'd worked at Radio Caroline. Yeah. He was a DJ called Johnny Walker. Not the whiskey, but the man. I think his name does come from the whiskey, though, because that's not his real name. Yeah. He's a DJ that I actually grew up listening to anyway, because he... Um, after working on Radio Caroline, he did have a quite prominent slot on Radio 2. I think this is where my love for this film comes from, is because growing up, my parents almost exclusively listened to Radio 2, and that has a, a roster of, well, had a roster, I should say, of DJs that either came through this system or were descendants yeah. of... It was a station that was mainly populated by proper DJs, and this is where I air my grievances now because radio has changed so much that unless you're dealing with a proper, like an independent digital station, yes, proper yeah, DJs say, yeah. on mainstream radio are few and far between. They're becoming like an endangered breed. So you only really get it if you're willing to stay up until like one o'clock in the morning <laughs> and and listen to some someone's odd one hour, two hour collection of strange music. Yeah, or if you're listening to some really obscure, very small digital station. Exactly, yeah. But mainstream radio is just now almost exclusively populated by personalities they have to be tv personalities as well like multimedia personalities yeah and that you know you're dealing with curated playlists that are record company mandated so you're just dealing with a completely homogenized artificial radio station yeah i mean there's not much difference between one channel to the other and from yeah. one hour to the next in fact and I think that's one of the things I really love about this film, that it gives you a real refreshing look back at how radio actually should be. I mean, this kind of shows my age. But the radio station that both myself and my wife have began listening to is BBC Radio 6. That's the radio station where we hear a lot of music old and new that we've not heard before. It feels like the last of the old guard of that type of radio station, really. And it's when the cuts come down, that's the first one that's going to go. It's gotten worn down to the point of ridiculousness it's just mm -hmm. personalities who usually don't know much about what they're actually playing which i find quite yeah. interesting so yeah this is like another thing and i think the other thing i love about this film is that it has a, a real unadulterated love for music and people yeah. who love music and that's really what the film's about it's not about the antics. It's more about... That's the heart of the film, I think, which I think why it mm -hmm. resonates with me so much. The film is largely soundtrack-based, though I think it has about 60 songs on the soundtrack. And there's only one original music cue in the whole thing. Yeah, there is, yeah. Which is <laughs> the bit at the end when the, the boats come to the rescue. The Dunkirk ending. Yeah, and that music cue, uh, you just mentioned Dunkirk, is actually written by Hans Zimmer and Lorne Belf. I knew, I knew, I knew it yeah. would be. <laughs> and they did it as a favour to Working Title because I think Hans Zimmer did some work for Working Title back in the late 80s when he was starting out. Yeah. So it was kind of like a, a thank you to Working Title for helping him launch his career. Well, Hans Zimmer's a weird one because everybody thinks that you get this Hans Zimmer sound, which I completely understand and he did kind of fall into for a while. But every now and again you see his name turn up in the weirdest places like Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Yeah, like music produced by Hansen, but what? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's that type of thing. So I'm not too surprised to see his name mentioned in reference to that. And I was going to say it felt very rock and roll, Dunkirk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
that's a good point to really begin talking about the film and like uh, in terms of what we thought about it because like as i mentioned in the opening my background with this film the first time i saw it it was one that an experience that skewed negatively i will say approaching the film now i want to go over the positives first which is straight from the off it's wonderful to see philip seymour hoffman yeah there's not a cast member in this film that i would change the cast and the characters in which they play are a wonderful varied bunch and it's clearly richard curtis playing to his to his strengths Man, I say there's not one person that I would change. The filmmaking's fine. The set looks great. The soundtrack that is used is amazing. The only issue I have with the film, and unfortunately it's a large issue for me, like one that I struggle to get past, is the lead character, this Tom Sturridge leading man, Yeah, is that he's just such a nothing passive individual in this world. He has no ambition. He has no drive. Very little motivation whatsoever beyond getting laid which seems to come and go he seems like a bit of a wet blanket and i get like you have a passive individual because we're being introduced to this world and we're seeing it through his eyes but he kind of even just disappears for 40 minutes in between the film, like in the middle of the film somewhere i found myself certainly liking the film a lot more on this particular watch and i can see why somebody would it is a lot of fun to watch and i would say individually all of the scenes kind of work but as a whole, it feels slightly lesser than the sum of its parts. And that irks me just because of how much it does right everywhere else kind of thing. Mm. But that is the main character and his lack of motivation and his lack of drive and his kind of um, wet blanketedness that it smothers the film at times for me. Yeah. Any time that we do spend with him, any significant time, we're like, just get us back to Reese Darby and Philip Seymour Hoffman and yeah. <laughs> you know the whole crew of people. But that's my opinion, and I understand it's a film that you love, but what? Where do you, how are you approaching this film now? I mean, like, what is this film for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, because, yeah, I think he is just a, a blank canvas. It's a way yeah. into the world of these colourful characters. I do know that it's an issue with the edit. The fact that Richard Curtis does an intro for every single deleted scene, there's 45 minutes worth of deleted scenes for this film, and every right. single deleted sequence has a five-minute intro by richard curtis and these are not little scenes he kind of admits i fucked up here because this film was overlong when it was scripted and because he let the actors improvise and they added things when they were shooting it ended up being well over an hour longer than it actually should have been yeah and the finished film is longer than it should have been he's very honest to camera when he's talking about these scenes and how he even admits some of them would actually make the film better, but because of the adherence to having some semblance of a plot thread line, they were superfluous to the needs. But I think it's one of those situations, again, where if you get bogged down with trying to make your film shorter, you sometimes cut too much or you cut the wrong thing out. You cut the heart out of your film. There's a couple of scenes in the deleted scenes which directly address your issue with that character. There's a crucial scene with him and his dad, Bob, which I'm very puzzled as to why that's not in the film because it's like the heart of their relationship and it's not in the film. Yeah. On the Blu-ray, it's called More Beans, Please. It sounds like my kind of scene. Yeah. <laughs> but it follows up the revelation that Carl has told Bob that he's his dad and how he didn't yeah. react to it. And they're in the um, canteen eating beans because that's all that's left because there's no other supplies. <laughs> I think this is more later on in the film. And they're talking about 
what's just happened. Carl's like, maybe we should leave it and go back to how we were because it seemed much better. And he was like, I didn't know. She didn't tell me, but I'm very proud of you. I would do anything for you. I would have done back then. I still would do now. And it's just this little beautiful moment because you know how good Ralph Brown is as an actor. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. It's the heart of that character relationship and it makes the bit at the end when he's saving him from the flood means so much more mm-hmm. so it's a real puzzler as to why that particular scene yeah. is not in the film i mean that gets to the kind of like heart of the problem that i have with the film as well you see in the, the film through the eyes of that character and the other thing i would say as well is like the haphazard nature that it approaches the idea of conflict and drama that I mentioned that the film feels like a series of vignettes and it feels like a series of a lot of vignettes. Yeah. And each one's fine in, in and of itself, but each one, it feels like it's not been explored for its dramatic weight whatsoever. And I understand that they're going more for like a hard day's night type of film yeah. and feel. And I get that. But anytime there's a real moment to make a character statement to bring some friction, even like from an external point of view, it seems to be brushed over within the next scene. And I would say that the best example of that is, one, with that character, you have that father revelation. It doesn't really introduce the whole father angle that he's there to essentially find his dad. Even then, you have the angle to explore of, he's on this ship to find a father figure, something he's never had in his life. And there he finds this collection of 10 or so individuals who in some way, shape or form all contribute to being his father figure. And amongst them, he finds his real dad. Yeah. And that feels like that's what the film is about, but only in about like three scenes. <laughs> yeah. And the other one as well is the conflicts with uh, Kenneth Branagh as the uh, government official that's been tasked to bring the boat down. That is so removed from what's happening on the boat. It's uh, like its own separate thing. And it never really interacts directly with the boat itself in any way, shape, or form. And um, you have a moment at the end as well where because of the rules that have been brought into place, the boat sets sail. And I remember watching it for the first time. I was like, oh, wow, so this is what we're going to do for the ending. It's like it's going to be a a little comedy of the boat that came up with a load of different ways to stay away from the authorities, you know, that kind of thing. And then it's like, oh, no, actually, the boat sinks. Uh, like yeah (laughs) immediately afterwards and that summarizes in terms of like on a story level in terms of like a character conflict level it feels like it's tripping over its own feet constantly and i guess the way forward with that is it needed to either have more story and conflict or less yeah i guess that's my issue with it and i there's a lot i like about this film there's a lot watching it this particular time knowing what i was getting myself into i felt a lot more comfortable with the film I was entertained a lot more and I was sat here going, the thing is, individual scenes are absolutely fine. You know, there's many skits here that I really like, but um, it's just the way it hangs as a whole. Yeah. It's just lesser than the sum of its parts for me, but I can get why anybody responds well to this film. I understand that now and I didn't before. Yeah, I think there's two prongs to it. I think his love for the subject matter skewed him in in that direction, as I think it would do if you're very passionate about the music side of it and the actual just the idea of portraying this radio station and i think also because they shot so much footage and it's not like i said it's not just gristle you're talking whole sequences and subplots richard curtis is a very undisciplined director yeah as a writer you can write 
all day. You know, there's no budgetary requirements or restraints on that. And it's up to the uh, filmmakers to um, whittle that down and focus it. Whereas because he's a writing and directing, he's not able to approach the material with that level-headedness and yeah. ruthlessness that's needed. Every single one of his three films suffer from that aspect. I think the one that gets away with it the most is probably about time, just because the plot itself is a bit more focused. The actual premise is a bit more focused. Yeah. But Love Actually and The Boat That Rocked are incredibly sprawling behemoths of films. You know, I think they've got similar runtimes as well. I think they're all about two hours, 15 minutes. And both of those films have got at least 40 to 45 minutes of deleted scenes and huge subplots which have been surgically removed from the film. There's a whole set of characters in Love Actually which are not in the film at all. There's a whole other strand. It's the Anne Reed, Francis de la Tour story which has just been completely taken out of the film. They're not in the film at all. And with The Boat That Rocked, there's a similar subplot which yeah. is the Radio Sunshine subplot. Oh. is of a rival pirate radio station which has sprung up which is taking some of their listeners so they go on board that ship and sabotage the station (laughs) it's kind of cool in a way because it shows them as actually being pirates and then it cuts to the daytime when they're listening to this radio sunshine and everything goes wrong in a way i'm quite thankful this scene isn't in the film because although the scene features the great rich fulcher as one of the djs the other dj in the scene is our old friend james corden Oh no. So I'm very thankful that this film is a James Cordenless <laughs> affair because I feel oh. like if he was in the film, you could easily knock off a star. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think if he's in a film, if he's in, for example, a five star film, you can easily knock off six stars for him yeah. being there. Although, to be fair, when you watch the scene, because he's the butt of the joke and the joke's on him. It's actually quite a nice scene to watch because he actually gets his comeuppance. Yeah. The only thing also, it's offset because Rich Fulcher's such a great comic actor Yeah, that he balances the scene out. But yeah, it's one of those things where he's so undisciplined and he's so in love with his, his characters and his subject matter that they film this whole sequence and it's completely superfluous to anything else that's going on in the film. As undisciplined yeah. as the film is... It's so superfluous. He even describes it as its own little sitcom episode. Like, that's exactly how it feels. I feel like I'm watching a series of episodes that need further elaboration, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's less of a film, but more of an omnibus compilation Yeah, of a big-budget TV series. Yeah. Given that it's a fairly small-scale story, the uh, production is quite extensive. You've got big cast members shooting on a boat for five weeks where you've got to take people out to the boat so you've got all the logistics of that you've got all these sets that are on gimbals and then you've got the whole sinking sequence at the end which involves Mm -hmm. a lot of cg and physical effects you know it's like a mini titanic at the end yes it does yeah so all those combined made the film cost way more than it should have done you know this is a 50 million dollar film which is fairly small change, but for a film of this type, it's still quite a big budget. Yeah, absolutely. You know, something approaching an Adam Sandler film <laughs> in its budget, <laughs> yeah. you know, because we know how elaborate those are. Yeah. <laughs> Although they're not just going on a holiday to, like, the Caribbean. This no. Time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I would say as well, like, the ending, the final act with the sinking of the boat, is really, in terms of, like, a nuts and bolts dramatic conflict sense, 
that's the only part of the film where it feels like it mines that situation for all that it's worth. Yeah. And it probably goes on the longest out of all of those vignettes as well, like yeah. all of those episodes. It's a season finale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing I think that would just make this for me personally into something that I would appreciate a lot, lot more is that I think when it comes to that main character, the uh, Tom Storage role, uh, what's his name? Carl, is it? Carl. Yeah, Carl. Young Carl. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that he's enjoying his time on the boat, but if he had any real motivation to be there, maybe he has aspirations of becoming a disc jockey himself and is, like, vying for time in the middle of these really huge mammoth characters, you know, trying to find his little space, his little niche. If the film was, like, more about, like, well, what's your music? What's your sound? What are you bringing to the table? Yeah, I think if that was his conflict through the film... Yeah, I do agree with that. That would have, like, just elevated the film to... It would have felt like he had more purpose to be there. Instead, his motivation is... Like, he doesn't really have a motivation until about 50 minutes in. No, I do agree with that. He is such a blank canvas. You don't even know what music he likes. He doesn't have a job on the boat, which I find weird. No, yeah, that's weird. He's just there. Even if they gave him a job on the boat, it would help him integrate within the team. Yeah. Because even when they talk about, we thought you were a posh tosser at the start, but now we want you to stay forever. What have you been contributing to this boat? <laughs> You're taking up resources. Yeah, even if they did an almost famous about it and was like, he has ideals of becoming a journalist or something like that, of documenting his time here. Mm. But it's just that, I know I'm just here. I'm just part of the background. Yeah, I do agree with all those points, definitely. I think the thing I can forgive the film for is because it does kind of forget about him for a while. It doesn't overweigh. No, no, that's it. Yeah, you're right. You are right. So he's definitely an incredibly flawed character, but because he's such a passive figure in the film, he's not weighing the film down with those issues because it's so much more interested in these colourful characters. He's there as a mechanism rather than a a fully-fledged character. Like I say, I think that explains why he goes missing as well, because we need him at the beginning and we need him at the end. But in the middle, we get to spend some time with these wonderful characters. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, what a collection of great actors. We've been talking about the embarrassment of riches that is this cast, but let's, let's just go through a few of the names. So obviously there's the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, who every time I see him on screen, I get like a little pang in my heart of, oh, what a talent. I think it's a testament to how much of a chameleon that he is that I always forget it's Philip Seymour Hoffman playing that character. It's so unlike some of the other characters that he plays in other films. He's playing a rather gruff, grisly, seasoned (laughs) bear of a character. It's not something he usually played. And he plays it so well that you just forget that he is him. He's the Count. That's Yeah. And the great thing about it is that he's such a great actor that he blends himself into the ensemble. It's not a showy part. It's not like, I'm the actor. I'm the biggest name in this group. He is so generous to all the other actors in the scene that he's just another one of the DJs. And it's rather fantastic to watch. He has such a gravity to him that he could easily do that as well. And as you say, he's just so generous. He just feels like he's... And just part of the crew that he's always been there and always will be. Yeah, just like a huge, huge, huge loss to the world of acting and cinema that he's just not, it's not here anymore. Yeah, truly. I do think in this film as well, like the character that he gets to play opposite the most is 
probably uh, Reese Evans. Yeah. He is another, like, as you say, Richard Curtis. Um, staple. <laughs> a staple. Obviously, having been in Notting Hill. I quite like him in this film as well. He's a, like yeah. a late introduction, but um, I probably think that the episode regarding their conflicts with each other as a offshoot from the uh, the fantastic Chris O'Dowd 17-hour marriage yeah. <laughs> is a great section of the film. I really enjoy that. Hey, babe. <laughs> <laughs> Chris I, O'Dowd in this film is... I, I say everyone in this film is brilliant. I think you could have made the film Chris O'Dowd the lead. <laughs> that scene, though, when... January Jones reveals that she's just on the boat because she wants to sleep with Gavin. It's so horrible. It's horrific, but it's so funny. It's so heartbreaking. He's doing this kind of like the thing that he does so well where it's he's crying, but he's smiling and he's clearly at a loss. He doesn't know what um, the situation has gone so far out of his grasp that he's just completely untethered. I love like that little nod towards the just married letters hanging in the room as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just it's such a tragic character yeah it's so well played and even the whole bit where he mimes to stay with me afterwards is just great yeah he does that panicked bewildered sadness so well i know there's an episode of the it crowd i think episode one of series two where he has to pretend that he's disabled in the theater disabled and he does a similar thing there and he's so good at doing it (laughs) even the minor characters are fantastic the um the guy plays the newsreader. Will Adamsdale. Yeah. And the helping hand, I think it's called Harold. There's that little scene, you know, the one where Carl discovers that Marianne slept with Dr. Dave and he's sitting oh, yeah. moping and then those two come along and they have the tea and biscuits. Mm-hmm. That is completely improvised. Oh, is it? Yeah. And it's one of the nicest little sweetest moments in the film. And it just shows you the sort of camaraderie and I think that's why the film overran, because it had so many moments like that. That just naturally arose. I think that's the thing as well. When you look at the deleted scenes, there's definitely scenes in there which, yeah, I would take out, but I don't think he knew how to kill his darlings. Yeah. Like you say, it's just hinting at a different format, essentially. It's just nearly there. But I definitely think, as we were talking about the plot, the thing that I don't think works so well is all the stuff with Kenneth Branagh and Jack Davenport because yeah. I don't think it even works on a humour level either. I don't think the humour is as sharp in those sections as it is in, no. the, in the boat scenes, because I don't like the whole... Twat. Twat. Because in the I deleted don't. scenes, you know Miss C is Miss Clit as well. That humour doesn't land. It seems very juvenile in comparison to what's going on with the stuff on the boat. Even for Richard Curtis, who's used this kind of joke before in the past with Blackadder, where you have Darling... Yeah, darling is a much better word when it comes to that type of thing because it lends to far funnier character exchanges than just having this. Oh well, this stuffy character says twat every now and again, and <laughs> not only does it feel like he's repeating himself with that joke, but it's coming up with a far more juvenile and lesser version of that joke, and they milk it for way beyond its worth essentially yeah. as well like if it had been one little thing it would have been okay fine it's also annoying that the the funniest scene that references his name is in the deleted scenes of course it is <laughs> kenneth Branagh's wife and daughter are featured more heavily but they're talking about oh i know some twats in essex and in terms of like the family ties because there's like a certain 
thing between him and the daughter, Jack Davenport and the daughter. And when they're outside, Kenneth Brown is like, don't call her, I don't want to twat in the family. That part of it works, and it's like, you could have lost all the other references and had that instead. And I think yeah. this is where, in having the film become so overlong when they've put it together, and then trying to whittle it down, he just doesn't have the skills as a director to focus the film and then understand what the funny essential parts are. Yeah. So I think you could put the film together using all this footage in a much better way. Yeah, I think it's like he needed another eye. It is all there, but because he's tried to whittle it down, but maybe thrown some of the wrong things out and then kept some of the things in that maybe could be taken out. Yeah, when it comes to that section of the film, it's certainly the lesser section of the entire film. Everything with Kenneth Branagh. As it exists, you could probably cut it out entirely and yeah. have some very minor references to what's happening on shore. Because that's where it feels like it, the point that it's almost at already anyway. Yeah. And I think it is important to have some sort of antithesis of what's happening on the boat. I understand its role there. But as it is currently, anytime we get to those characters, it feels just more like, here's some exposition for what's happening here yeah. that could affect the boat later. And it feels so far removed. Yeah, because there are some great moments of juxtaposition between those two parts of the film. Like the best bit by Country Mile is the contrast between the two Christmas dinners. Yes, yeah. That is magic. And it's unfortunate that the actress who plays the wife of Kenneth Branagh's characters only in that scene now because all the rest of her scenes are not on. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. But that whole when they pull the cracker. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's enough excitement for one day. Yeah, and then you contrast that with all the shenanigans that are going on in the boat party. It's yeah. just magic. She has that kind of like, no sex please with British vibe about her. Yeah. It's like this the opening of the cracker, you get this little moment of, oh. <laughs> yeah, I think that Christmas party as well epitomizes the whole film because I think he wants you to like these characters and want to be part of that boat. And that is a scene that wouldn't you really want to have a Christmas party that's like the one they have on the boat? Yeah. With Philip Seymour Hoffman coming in dressed as Santa going, ho, ho, fucking ho, and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, Thick Kevin dressed in the bunny costume. Ah, <laughs> oh, poor Thick Kevin. Ah. Oh. <laughs> this film is a, a weird one because it's such an embarrassment, riches and its cast and its characters, and there's so many wonderful moments with all of them, but it just doesn't quite hold together as a film. Yeah. It's a real shame that it doesn't. <laughs> I can forgive it, though, because it's doing so much good. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. I want to stress, although my initial reaction was negative towards this film, and I have certainly softened on it over the years, clearly. The main issue that I have with this film is just that it works so well in some places that it makes it very unfortunate that it doesn't work in others for me. And much like we've said with some films in the past, you know, sometimes you fall into the category of people that can look past those particular pitfalls. And sometimes you get stuck in them. I've definitely softened on this film. That is for sure. And these characters and these actors, I mean, like even like Reese Darby as well is, is, oh. is fucking brilliant. Yeah. Pretty much everybody on the boat is just wonderful to be around. And I certainly want to spend some time on that boat with those particular characters. And it makes me feel that now. I do have issues with it, but I think over the years now, I've definitely understand a lot more why people respond to it quite so positively because although when we get into the stats and facts you'll see that it does have some 
detractors. In my research for this film and looking at like the trailers online and going through the audience perception of the film, it's got quite a positive following, and especially from people that grew up in this era as well. And I can see why it has that following now, whereas yeah. I couldn't before. So, yeah, maybe the next watch for me, it, it'll take it even further. Yeah, I think it's well on its way to becoming a cult film. Yeah, I would say so, for sure. Yeah, and I think if you have any real interest or passion for music, this is a film that, even if you don't think it works all the time, it's going to resonate with you in some way. Oh, yeah. Because, for me, on a personal level, this film resonates me in a big way, because it's a real love letter to the music of the time. Well, it's one of the best soundtracks I've heard for a film in general. Yeah, Richard Curtis must have written the screenplay with many of these songs in mind. So there's quite a lot of songs that feel right for the scene. Yeah, yeah. This isn't a Suicide Squad situation where the music feels tacked on and intrusive. No. It's integrated into the film. It's the heart of the film. It's a character, yeah. Well, yeah, it's the heart of the film, yeah. for sure. None of the songs feel intrusive in any way, shape, or form. They enhance the scene a lot of the times because it's just so much about them. Mm-hmm. You do appreciate that in the character's belief that these are the wonder of the world. It's coincidental, I suppose, that they chose this particular period of music to use because it's all part and parcel. And it's ironic in a way that this was talking about a time when you had to have these pirate radio stations considering the rich seam of music that was being produced at that time. I think they describe it on the um, on one of the featurettes, this particular period, this sort of mid to late 60s period of music, they were saying how almost every single record seemed important, yeah. important to the tapestry of popular music. Now, you contrast that to today, where we're going down this weird slippery slope right now of AI being used for music and the whole kind of worms that's opened up with that have you seen the rise of like the ai artists who are essentially just putting in prompts into an ai generator and claiming the art as their own yeah because nobody else put that prompt in nobody else combined these sources and an ai generator and it's like it's a real slippery slope here that we're on yeah it's just a a complete minefield and again i don't think people have really fully got their heads around the implications for that, and that's mm. not just me just being old fuddy duddy. It has real no, serious no, implications on human endeavor. <laughs> you know, we're going from stuff like that now, and just the whole barrage of homogenized automated music, which is why people are so used to, why people are accepting this kind of thing because popular music, especially, is so squeezed into this little narrow band of nothingness. Mm-hmm. When you contrast that, this approach, the kind of records they're playing in this film with what we have now and what our children are going to grow up listening to unless they decide to dig. Yes, that's it, yeah. The onus falls on us as parents to make sure that yeah. you know, <laughs> we give them as varied as, a, uh, as an upbringing as possible when it comes to the arts. Yeah. Because, my God. Yeah, so I think that's why I respond so much to this film and why I watch it so regularly. It's like a little beacon of hope. And again, yeah. there's definitely a nostalgia element to it because i think you know it's made with that intention it kind of reaffirms my love for music and music of this period and why people like music in the first place and i think that's why i feel like this film for all its faults is doing something rather positive yeah especially when you know you're dealing with the music industry that is so homogenized and cynical 
these days. Yeah. It's nice to celebrate what we've actually achieved and what's gone before and why people like this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I totally get where you're coming from. And especially like when it comes to the history of music and your relationship. And that seems to be something online when I do see the fans and the cult following that is grown for this film that is very important to those people. It, it's all about this film as a love letter to the music, to the great personalities that arose during this time. And uh, primarily, like you say, to the artists. And that is something that does follow this film around from wherever I look online. Yeah. It's not just nostalgia goggles. It was genuinely no. a great time. I mean, there was definitely a lot of crap that was made at that time that's been forgotten about, definitely. But if you just happen to look at the charts for any given week within that period of time, it's just an embarrassment of riches, which you just do not get now. Yeah. Okay, so um, moving on to the stats and facts then. In regards to the critical consensus the film on rotten tomatoes has a tomato reading of 59 percent um that's after 167 reviews and an average rating of 5.7 out of 10 the critic consensus is that the good cast and rollicking soundtrack eventually drown when this comic homage to pirate radio loses its quippy steam however the film does have an audience score of 71 percent and an average rating of 3.7 out of five one fan that it did have was in roger ebert who gave the film three out of four and he says richard curtis is good at handling large casts establishing all the characters and keeping them alive his credits include love actually and the scripts for four weddings and a funeral notting hill and bridget jones here the plot doesn't require a reason for the characters to keep running into one another there's nowhere they can hide no coincidences means more development and the wall-to-wall -wall 60s rock keeps things bright. And as I say, that was three out of four that he gave that. And he was probably reviewing the, the pirate radio version of the film as well. <laughs> and that's it, yeah. So the IMDb rating for the film is 7.3 out of 10. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, the version that he would have been reviewing is most certainly going to be the pirate radio version of the film. If you look on Rotten Tomatoes, the film goes by the title Pirate Radio. And... That is the title that it was released with in America. Mm -hmm. Now, when it actually came to the release in America, it has something of a interesting history. It isn't the version that we have. No. And I think that is reflected in the, uh, the box office as well. Yeah. So the budget for the film, as you mentioned, was $50 million. It opened. Let me just say, this is the top 10 for the week. Yeah. That the boat that rocked or pirate radio opened in America. So at number one, you have 2012. At number two, you have A Christmas Carol, the Robert Zemeckis film. Number three was Precious. Number four was The Men Who Stare at Goats. Number five was This Is It. Number six was The Fourth Kind. Number seven was Couples Retreat. Number eight was Paranormal Activity. Number nine was Law Abiding Citizen. And number 10 was The Box. That's a classic year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might notice that there is actually a film missing in that uh, collection of top 10 greatest films for the year. But yeah, the uh, top 10 for that weekend doesn't actually include The Boat That Rocked or Pirate Radio. No. That actually opened, yes, at around 900 theaters, but it opened to number 11 with 2.9 million. <sighs> and uh, even domestically overall, it made 8 million in America. But the international market had made $28 million for a worldwide total of 
just over $36 million. Yeah. Now, why would this film fail at the box office so dramatically? I mean, let's say even when you approach this film as being, oh, well, it isn't my cup of tea, you look at that cast, you look at Philip Seymour Hoffman, you look at the, the way in which they could sell this movie, why on earth did it not even open with any inkling of an audience whatsoever? This, that's more than a failure of film, that's a failure of marketing. So, Andy, where do you think the issue is? I'm not sure. I think, well, there's one thing in um, doing the research for this film, because the trailer isn't on the Blu-ray, I tried to find the UK trailer. And it proved incredibly hard to find. Mm-hmm. And what I did find wasn't very good. It seems to be a running theme with some of these later Richard Kurtz movies that their trailers are dog shit. Yes. And I don't know why that is the case. Plus, I don't think the poster tells you what the film's about. Which no. is another problem. I think for me, it really needs to be a poster of a DJ sitting in the DJ studio. I think that would have yeah. been a better way of conveying what the film was about because it's just your main actors on a plank walking into the sea and this is a particularly bad example of poor marketing in a film i think yeah i suppose we should mention as well at this point that the version that was released in america as well is not the version that we got over here so it's like a poorly marketed version of a different film essentially yeah so there was like almost a nine month gap in between the uk release and the us release of this film like the uk version was released at the start of 2009 and yeah it did very poor business in the uk so at the behest of focus features who were distributing the film in the us the film was completely recut and was made about 18 minutes shorter than its uk counterpart and this didn't just involve taking scenes out scenes were reshuffled and some music Mm -hmm. was changed as well and apparently not for the better because many of these things were character moments that were crucial to the development and it sounds like some of the best moments in the film were taken out little things apparently the um scene where angus plays the seekers twice you know double seekers (laughs) is gone yeah the scene where Simon Swafford sings Stay With Me after the breakup of what? his marriage is gone. Okay. The stag do is gone. Oh, see, that's the most hard day's night part of the film as well. Yeah, apparently it's replaced with a much less funny collage of a party held on the boat. Oh, okay. Jack Davenport's character's visit to the boat is gone. I think that whole event on the boat is gone because the, the scene with all the naked ladies in Mark's quarters mm-hmm. is gone as well. Yeah. Which makes me laugh because when we start talking about the US trailer, that scene appears in the trailer with the ladies all clothed when they do horrible film censorship and they CGI (laughs) clothes onto people. That's in the trailer, the US version. Oh my God, I must have missed that when I watched it because that reminds me of when they did the uh, TV cut of Showgirls. Yeah. And everybody had these poorly painted on bras and pants. Yeah. And even the context of Marianne coming back onto the boat that takes place before the ban in the yeah. american version of the film so they've and also i think they use my generation when the pilot boats are coming to raid the ship um, oh right okay so yeah it seems like many strong moments have been snipped away i'm not sure whose behest whether it was done without curtis's involvement 
Yeah. And uh, this is one of the curios that I found, because if you type in the Boat That Rock trailer, the trailer that pops up the most is the US trailer, which I it's one of the most <laughs> misleading trailers I've ever seen, because it yeah. basically advertises a film that doesn't exist. You can tell how desperate they are because it's incredibly pandering to a US audience. And I don't understand the need for this because I don't think it's the US audience's fault, but it's this mm. perception that the US audience demands things that revolve around America. I don't know why yes, that is. Yeah. And this just takes it to the uh, nth degree. So just to compare the, again, it's the poor UK trailer, but to compare it with the US trailer, which is something else, I'm going to just stick that clip in there now so you can have a listen to it for yourself <laughs> and we'll regroup it was loud it was rebellious and in 1966 the british government banned rock and roll on the radio that's the whole point of being the government if you don't like something you simply make it illegal until one american dj i don't give a hoot nanny about your limey laws He's possibly the most famous broadcaster ever. And a band of renegades. You must be the count. I am he. Take me to the microphone. Launched a radio station on the high seas. We should have set sail years ago. And raided the airwaves. Let's have a tune. I'm sick of this silence. I'm the count. You are listening to Radio Rockers. We count down to ecstasy. Rock on! Are you doing something dirty? And that was for Erica. <laughs> They had millions of fans. A nice young man has lost his virginity. A boat full of treasure. Busy day. <laughs> and the full attention. Pirate radio. Of the authorities. That will soon be the first person cursed on rock and roll radio. Here it comes. Shut that filth off. Oh, we're going to shut them down. They can't close us down. We're pirates. They will find a way. Governments loathe people being free. This fall, experience the comedy. Our heroic disc jockeys become dangerous criminals. About the untold story. Declaring war. Of the motley crew that saved rock and roll. This is a trick. We've got the wrong damn boat. Spectacular mistake. From the creator of Four Weddings and a Funeral. These are the best days of our lives. And Love Actually. They will come after us. Let them try. I intend to broadcast from this ship until the day I die. And for a couple days after that. Academy Award winner Philip Seymour Hoffman, Bill Nye, Risa Fong, Nick Frost, and Kenneth Branagh. Young men and young women will always dream dreams and put those dreams in the song. Pirate Radio. Let's rock! Us! Us! Twack! Us! Don't know what that means. I didn't understand any of that. So as you can see, this trailer is not the film that you actually see. No, not at all. The fact that it tries to channel Philip Seymour Hoffman's character as the main character and the saviour of the whole plot is yeah. just baffling, especially as we've described earlier, that how easily Philip Seymour Hoffman blends into the cast and he's just another one of the characters on the boat. It's crazy that they did that because it feels like, you know, there was that whole thing recently with another Richard Curtis film where... The studio has been taken to court with regards to false advertising because of the Anna Diamas role being cut from yesterday and yet her featuring in the trailer. And a American judge has ruled that, yeah, that is false advertising. And I understand that. I understand that a lot of trailers now are just going to come with disclaimers at the end saying, you know, things in this film may change, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like video games do. 
But this film, like, it is false advertising. It yeah. is advertising a completely different film than what this is because it's not. And it's like one man stood against the machine, the British government, to to, <laughs> to broadcast radio. Even the fact that it says based on a true story, and it's like, no, it's kind of based on a situation that happened, but it's very much a fictitious portrayal of that. <laughs> yeah. It's such an oddity. And yet, to be honest, the very thing that we wanted to do for this podcast was to review both films yeah, and compare and contrast, much like we did with Kingdom of Heaven. But the American cut of the film is now so hard to find. We just, we couldn't locate it anyway. I think I'd, I have the film anyway. I own it on Blu-ray, but I think I downloaded it an extra three times. Yeah, I think outside of its theatrical release and its initial DVD release, if you go and search because we tried to download it several times and it ended up just being the UK version with the UK title and all, even though it said Pirate Radio on it. It feels like that US version of the film, because it also failed and because it's very much an inferior version, which makes a mockery of the material on display, that that version has been quietly brushed under the rug. Yeah. So the de facto version that anyone can see if they download it now is the British version. And that US version is just a a bizarre oddity. So yeah, we were planning on watching the US version, but I just could not find, unless I actually bought a US DVD of it, which I wasn't going to do because it cost quite a lot of money. (laughs) So that's very telling to its quality and, and how well it resonates with people. And that's why I think over the years, things like the IMDb rating has improved. The cult following for this film has grown. It's because the pirate radio version of this film has kind of faded to obscurity. It's not the version that you're going to find out there. And soon it'll just be forgotten. Yeah. I think also it's a film that actually benefits from being viewed at home. Yes. Yeah, I would say so as well. I can see what you mean about it reacting negatively to it in the theatre because it's not a theatre-friendly film in that regard it's definitely a cozy home viewing experience yeah you're right that's exactly how i'd describe it it's a cozy film yeah and i think that's why you know richard curtis films they do have a lot of replay value in the home you know whether you like them or not they resonate with audiences as a home viewing experience i mean i can't even think how many times i've seen four weddings and a funeral on various formats i can definitely understand why people just wouldn't take to these kind of films definitely but i think for a lot of people they are nice reassuring films without being completely vapid yeah and i like this one especially because it's very different to all his other films it's not a romantic comedy so if you're not in the mood for a romantic comedy but if you and if you're into music then this is a good film to put on yeah i can see that yeah i mean and just to summarize for myself as well like you say this film has flaws this film has a couple of, well, I would say mainly one fatal flaw, but even that taken aside, it is a film that's still very easy to recommend for me. And that's weird to say that now, considering just how negative a reaction I had to this film on the first watch. A lot of the same issues I still have with the film, but I'm able to look past them to see what the film does actually offer and what it offers with those characters and with the music and like as you say we said the word cozy then and that just resonated with me and how cozy the film feels it feels like hanging out so yeah i think it's a film that we would both recommend and uh, that's all we have time for on this episode of popcorn digest if you join us next time we'll be moving from the sexual escapades of one group of people to the uh 
to open in the likes of cinema for Basic Instinct. <laughs> Two? <laughs> Two? <laughs> We've been oh, through no. a few films recently where I think both of us have been a little bit too positive. Yeah. You know? We've been through a few films where we thought, <laughs> flaws and all, we love these films. Oh, no. And I've decided, let's continue that trend uh. <laughs> and review Basic Instinct 2. But until then, I've been Gareth. And I'm um, I'm on remand at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for listening. Oh,